placebo is this, for me at least, it was this big hole, this big contradiction of our biomedical model. And I wasn't, I wasn't sure if it was a, a real thing or a, an artifact or uh, I, I, I didn't want to classify it as a mysterious phenomenon, right? Because we're all people of science here. So, so if, if I'm making any sense here, that was basically the background. There was this area of itchy confusion in my brain and I didn't know what, like, how is this happening? How is this working? If this is a real thing, how can I harness it for, uh, for the athlete's benefit? Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. To join the forum or for potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. This podcast can also be found on your favorite platform, and if that platform allows you to rate the show, we'd appreciate you taking the time to do that so that we can get the info out to as many people as possible. We'd like to thank our podcast sponsors. This episode is supported by Josh Funk and the crew over at Rehab to Perform in Maryland. Rehab to Perform is a physical therapy company that is geared towards developing the clinician of the future. Their comprehensive DPT internship program will prepare the future graduate to make an impact in the world of sports and orthopedic physical therapy. For more information, check out the link in the show notes. This show is also supported by AP Analytics. AP Analytics is a boutique data consulting firm specializing in creative and low-resource solutions. Andrew Patton, the founder and former Clinical Athlete podcast guest from episode 44, has 10 years of experience working in human performance and general data-driven scientific consulting. If you need a question answered or have a problem and don't know where to start, head over to apanalytics.net or email Andrew directly at andrew at apanalytics.net. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. On this show, I'm joined by co-host Jared Maynard, who is a clinical athlete, continuing education director and coordinator, and a physiotherapist at Depth Physiotherapy in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. He's also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. And we have our other co-host, John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He is also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. And we are honored to welcome back onto the show, John Kiley, who is a researcher at the University of Central Lancashire in the UK and who is also a coach and consultant for teams and athletes of all levels. You probably remember John from episode 32, where we dug into all things periodization and stress. Well, on this show, we dig into all things placebo in sports medicine and athletic performance. Enjoy.
John Kiley, welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We are super excited. If our six listeners remember, John was on a previous episode. It was episode 32, and it was titled Periodization, Stress, and Uncertainty. And it, it was an amazing show, and we were just biding our time, waiting to get John back on. And if the last episode centered around uncertainty, the topic of this episode will build on that for sure, as we're going to talk about placebo. And we're going to talk about placebo as it influences training and rehab. And there's a lot to go into in this show. And first of all, John, thanks for coming back on. We really, really appreciate it. Can you give the listeners a brief rundown of, of what you're doing right now professionally, who you're working with, where you're, where you're doing your work, and what's led you to the interest in the topic of placebo? Uh, yeah, well, as I said, it, it, it's good to be back. And uh, since I was on last, I've actually listened to a few of your podcasts um, and really enjoyed them. Greg Lehman was on. Scott Morrison, a few other folks, uh, and I really enjoyed the, the conversations you had. So, yeah, my pleasure to be back on. Uh, yeah, so my daily bread is I work as a senior lecturer uh, in elite performance for a UK university called the University of Central Lancashire. And we run a professional doctorate program, uh, and I effectively supervise people who are interested in professional doctorates. Now, these could be a lot work in sport, work in professional elite sport. Um, some military, for example, physio or uh, conditioners. A, a mix of everything, really. Uh, and they're obviously kind of mid-career professionals interested in doing some significant CPD and that's what we do. We customize the CPD around their environment, their context, their problems. Uh, and they do a part-time doctor. takes a few years, but they drive innovations in their field. So I enjoy that, working with some good, clever, smart folks who are pushing boundaries. So, so that's the, I don't say academic part of my life. I don't really think of myself as an academic, I'm kind of a pseudo-academic or academic light. Um, <clears throat> the other part of my my world, I guess, is is uh, practical coaching, working with athletes. Um, and I guess that's more my home turf. That's where I've spent the majority of my time. Uh, so so these days, really, that's that's contract work. Um, yeah, but, but from a working with athletes perspective I've been around the block a few times uh, I've done pa Paralympics Olympics football World Cup Rugby World Cup with different countries so I've uh, been around the block and seen some really good practice seen some really bad practice been responsible for some good been responsible for some bad and ho hopefully have uh, lived and learned What's led to the topic of of placebo, or at least your interest in that topic, in particular in training and rehab? Yeah, well, I guess for all of us, 
placebo was this kind of nagging area of doubt for a long time. For me, as someone who was obsessed with how I help athletes to improve athletic performance. And I would say for the past 15, 16 years, it's been predominantly the perpetually injured that I've worked with. You know, uh, it is people rehabbing RTP, older players trying to squeeze out one more World Cup or one more big season. That type of problem has been the one that's that, that, that I've been asked to do and that I've been most interested in. Um, so I guess, yeah, placebo is this, for me at least, it was this big hole, this big contradiction of our biomedical model. And I wasn't, I wasn't sure if it was a, a real thing or a, an artifact or uh I, I didn't want to classify it as a mysterious phenomenon, right? Because we're all people of science here. So, so if, if I'm making any sense here, that was basically the background. There was this area of itchy confusion in my brain and I didn't know what, like, how is this happening? How is this working? If this is a real thing, how can I harness it for, uh, for the athlete's benefit? So... I guess that's what led down the rabbit hole, uh, and it's been it's been a few years, I think, before I've been able to make any type of sense out of it at all. Uh, I'm, I'm getting there now, but uh, hopefully this conversation will have fine-tuned it a little bit, and, and I, I still have a bit to go. As we set the framework for a, a topic or for a discussion on something as complex as, as the construct of placebo, is there a working definition that we can go off of or, or that you go off of as you're trying to make sense of this of this concept? Well, I think most of the definitions out there are pretty straightforward and it's all about a, a therapeutic benefit from an inert intervention. Now, we normally think of it's a, it's a dummy pill, it's a sugar pill. But obviously, it doesn't have to be that. It could be, there's been all kinds of placebos used, and, and maybe we'll talk about them. But effectively, it's been called the power of nothing. Uh, but I, I, I guess the point I'll make, and I'm sure you'll agree, is it's not nothing. It's not nothing. It's something. It's just not what we think it is. So I realise I'm being a little bit abstract there. Uh, I'm not trying to be mysterious about it, but uh, yeah, working definition, that's it. Therapeutic benefit from an inert intervention. And I think that alone has is mysterious for people because when we think about that, I think a lot of times it was, well, a placebo is something that doesn't have an effect. But we'll, but we'll get into the fact that that's not the case. It, the placebo effect is in and of itself an effect. There's something happening. There's changes in the body. So that, that beneficial something that is supposedly an inert state just has mysterious qualities in and of itself as we think about what it actually does to the body. So with that said, what are some examples that we see in the literature 
of of the effect of placebo, how does that manifest itself in the research with what you've seen? Well, I think it is, it's pretty clear in, and pain, I guess, is the poster child for placebo effects. Uh, Placebo has pretty dramatic effects on pain, up up to the extent that for people with chronic IBS, placebo can reduce pain more than lidocaine. So, you know, that's some pretty powerful stuff. And in some trials, placebo has been more effective. And again, depending on the trial, you will get different size effects. But yeah, placebo is pretty powerful. Now, osteoarthritis, uh, anxiety, insomnia, Parkinsonian tremor. There's a long list uh, of of ailments, I guess, whereby placebo has demonstrated benefits. Now, I think there are, like all our science, there are some things that claim a placebo effect and they're they're poorly designed studies and they're small. uh, But you do get some, you know, strange things being thrown up. Like, for example, one of them is uh, red pills work better as a stimulant. Blue pills work better as a sedative, except for Italian men. Okay, so the logic of this is Italian men tend to be obsessed with football, soccer. The Azzurri, the Italian soccer team, wear blue. So the logic is, well, the blue reminds them of Italian soccer and that stimulates them, whereas it doesn't have that effect on Italian women. I wouldn't put that forward as an argument about placebo. I would be surprised if that's a real thing. I would say that's an artefact. But it's often, it's you often get those type of um, strange, seemingly very mysterious things thrown in about placebo. But I don't want to go there. I think what I'm basing my comments on is like solid evidence that placebo is extremely effective. Now, sometimes the placebo effect uh, may be effective as the standard medication in the short term, but not in the long term. Uh, sometimes it isn't as effective as the standard medication. Uh, and sometimes it is more unpredictable than the standard medication. And again, it very much depends on the study. But what isn't in doubt, for me at least, is that there there is this phenomenon when I think I am taking something of therapeutic benefit, I get a benefit. So, and I, I think that's unquestioned, really, at this stage. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, it makes total sense. When I when I read the literature on, say, a placebo study, even if it's a commentary, it seems to kind of set the stage in regards to pharmacological studies as where placebo-controlled trials kind of came from. And so what was the point of having a a quote-unquote placebo? If you had two groups, one was the intervention group and one was the quote-unquote placebo group in which they were getting something that was indistinguishable from the intervention. And so the idea was 
if you compare the difference between the intervention group and the placebo group, then that's the real effect of the intervention. And then the evolution was, oh, wait, the placebo group is actually, when, if we had a third group, a control group, in, in which case got no placebo or intervention, there's actually a difference between the, the placebo and the control group. And so there's this evolution of placebo not being, not being a thing, almost being synonymous with no treatment or complete control to this, wow, there's something happening here. And I feel like at this point, placebo is kind of its own separate construct. Like I'm providing a placebo or, as its own, almost own separate intervention. And there's a discussion that kind of jumps off of there. But we've, we talked a little bit before we recorded and kind of our talking points before the show where your stance is maybe something a little bit different in that placebo is not, it's a standalone thing necessarily as much as it is an inherent trait that we've developed. And I don't want to misconstrue that. So can you go into a little bit of, of how we should conceptualize placebo in clinic or in practice? Well, I think you bring up an interesting point there. And if it's okay to take a little diversion before I come back and directly address that question. But of course. Yeah, please ex- correct all, any and all stupid things that I say. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I think what one thing that's clear, that seems clear to me at least now, was that there's always a placebo or a nocebo. There is no neutral. We talk about, you know, uh, placebo control. But whoever got the active ingredient, there's also a placebo element on top of that. That might, might make sense straight off the bat, but if you give me a few more, more minutes, I'll get there. Um, one of the other things that might be worth just mentioning here, and I think for me is even more dramatic than, than what happens with, you know, orally ingested dummy pills, uh, and that's placebo surgery. So... I guess the most famous study was 2002, a guy called Bruce Mosley from Houston, Texas. At the time, knee arthroscopy was the most common operation possibly in the world, definitely in the US, um, either through lavage or debridement of uh, articular surfaces. And he did placebo, like a placebo surgery, wheeled the person in, and these were all chronic uh, repeat cases of, of knee pain. On one third, he did atroscopy, lavage, one third, debridement, and the other third brought them in, put them to sleep, made the incisions, watched a video of, of him doing the operation, asked for the instruments, but didn't do anything else, closed them up, they went through standard post, post-op care. Uh, at three months, and again at two years, no difference in outcomes between the group. So, so that study kind of hit me between the eyes because um, there I am, I'm trying to, to change physical outcomes by, by training. Uh, these surgeons, who, as you know, are the kind of studs, superheroes of the medical world, uh, you know, 
push uh, obviously the the, upper, the this study was done by a surgeon but got a, he got a lot of pushback or he reported a lot of pushback from surgeons because he, as he said himself we wanted to believe that the success that we got was completely down to our surgical skills but post this study he said well I don't know if my skills made any difference. Now, since that time, that study has been repeated. Uh, it's been repeated with uh, subacromial decompressions uh, a couple of times as well. And again, really, really common surgeries that are done hundreds of times every day, but they're not outperforming placebo surgery. So again, it asks a big question of our conventional biomedical model. Um, so, so yeah. Now, I may have gone off track there. Do you want to bring me back with your question? Well, I think it sets the stage for the question very well. In, in terms of conceptualizing placebo, as opposed to it being its own, <clears throat> its own intervention or its, its own group, am I providing a placebo? How do you conceptualize placebo as a construct? Why, why, do we, why is there a placebo effect? Perfect. Okay. Um, so it might be useful to talk about the placebo paradox. So the placebo paradox is the articulation of a phenomenon that basically is, if I heal after I get nothing, I must have had the resources to heal. Oh, sorry, heal is the wrong word. If I feel better after I get, I ingest nothing or my operation is a, is a, is a, is nothing. I must have had the resources to feel better within me all the time. So why didn't I heal spontaneously? Why didn't I feel better spontaneously? Does that make sense? Yes. So there's this paradox. Why you? It's like the doctor or the, the surgeon gave you permission or gave you a nudge or, or pushed you towards feeling better. So that's the placebo paradox. So if you start thinking about, well, why is that the case? Why would I not heal? And I think the, the most clear, the, the clearest way to think of it is if, to look at things from an evolutionary perspective. So bear with me. If I am primitive man uh, in a Neolithic environment or Paleolithic environment, and I get, I I start to feel sick, or I I ingest a, a pathogen. Is it the right thing to do for me to launch a full immune response straight away? And the answer is well, it depends. What's the context? If the context is, uh, I'm on a hunting expedition, I'm in unknown territory, uh, I'm in the territory of a rival band, I'm, um, uh, I'm in a very dangerous place, I can't afford to get sick. Okay, I can't, sorry, I can't afford to feel bad. So in that context, there might be a completely different right answer from a survival perspective. And that right answer, uh, right answer might be, don't feel bad now. If you feel bad now, your chances of survival have just gone through the floor. Because if you get nauseous 
or start to limp around because of that pain in your knee or whatever it is, need to sleep in this hostile environment, you're in trouble. Contrast that with uh, something happens to me, I ingest a pathogen when I'm at home. I'm in my home environment, my home village, whatever it is. I have food around me. I have some degree of certainty around me. I have security. I have people who love me, people who take care of me, people who watch over me if I fall asleep. Completely different context, right? Launching a full immune response is appropriate over here. It's completely inappropriate over here. Yeah? I launch a full immune response, two things happen. Uh, I get the kind of the, the, the neurochemistry and the neurobiology of, of healing, but I also get the 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 signals to rest, the signals to expel, you know, to vomit if it's a if it's that type of pathogen. If it's uh, an injury to my knee, I, I get lots of pain and I rest it. You're given these nudges that tell you what to do. Yeah? No. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Because you, you have to spend resources. If you're in a safe place, like you're talking about with food, then you can expand those resources without, with less risk, so to speak. If you're around a rival tribe and you can't because you may have to run away from a spear or like a stampede of mammoths, then – it's probably safer to hold off on that re- immune response so that you have available resources in a stressful situation. Am I interpreting that correctly? Exactly what he said. So, and, and, and that's it. So if you look at those two contexts, it makes, it's actually so obvious that it would be hard to believe that evolution didn't kind of factor that in. So now evolution designed it in a way that we're not consciously aware of this. This is pretty much happening at a subconscious level, obviously influenced by conscious thought. I notice something, I say, oh, my God, you know, uh, there's really bad weather coming in or, you know, there's, there's a lot of predators out here. But basically, there is a, a feeling a perception, an interpretation of all these environmental signals that is saying to me either it's okay to launch an immune response or this is really unsafe. Let's tone down the immune response. You need to be able to move. You need to be cognitively sharp. You need to be, uh, you know, you need to be able to run. You need to be able to stay awake. All those things that are inhibited when we do launch a full immune response. You need to dial down. So, does that make sense? It does make sense. And I want to, my temptation is to jump right into, okay, awesome, how do we, how do we bottle that up clinically? But I want to hold off on that. And I want... I want to tie it into the, the the concept of stress because what you're what you're describing to in my mind is how we modulate stress and there's this dynamic interplay between the physical stress what's actually happening physiologically 
and then how we interpret that stress. So in your example, there's a, there's a filtering process, it sounds like, to some extent, where we interpret one stressor, maybe the, the injury or the sickness, and in terms of sickness, maybe we don't even interpret it consciously because maybe we don't know that we have the pathogen. But our body is modulating that stress differently than if it were in a different context, like you said, a safer environment. So to try to bring that into a, a point to actually have a discussion around is the concept or the term placebo the, and the concept term stress. What's the interplay there? Okay. Okay. That's a really good question. Um, is it even okay. a question? <laughs> no, Can, it I add a wrinkle? Can I add a wrinkle? Cause isn't belief going to bring something to the table here as well? If I don't believe that I'm under threat, isn't that going to change how I perceive stress? If I, uh, so there's the, the BD paper that, that you sent Quinn, the 2015 paper, they talk about overconfident athletes and how sometimes as coaches, we have to remind them of the risk in front of them, the risk their opponent may actually bring. If, if they have a, a stress response, that's not, uh, uh, equal to the task or equal or realistic to, to their belief in front of them. Doesn't belief also add a wrinkle to this entire equation? Because I know I'm making this more complicated than it probably needs to be right now, but isn't that going to modulate the stress response or at least change our perspective of it? So I think you're absolutely right. Belief is a huge factor here. Um, so, so let's just see if, if we can start to pull those together. So, Going back to your question, Quinn, about stress and placebo, and is there an interplay there? So if we go back to the evolutionary context, um, we're obviously the progeny of survivors. We're, you know, our ancestors were survivors. They were, they came through a pressurized environment, it would make sense that they were very responsive to, for example, what I mentioned with, I have this immune response, but it's very debilitating and very expensive. And the immune response is expensive. I think uh, for every, there was a study done a few years ago, for every degree Celsius, your temperature goes up, basal metabolic rate increases 13%. Immune responses are not free. Um, and then there's the debilitating, uh, you know, they slow cognition, they slow reflexes, they knock you out, they make you feel sick, yada, 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 yada. So there has to be some interplay between, there has to be some judgment call that's made, not by your conscious mind, but that's in a sense wired into your neurobiology. There has to be some sense of uh this is my context. This is the challenge I'm facing from this competition, this injury, this training session, uh, this stressful exam season, all these type of things. And then you're making this subconscious judgment. Am I up to this task? 
can I afford to release resources or do I need to hold on tight and really corral resources and save them? Does that make a degree of sense? So what I'm saying is we are all unconsciously and reflexively making a judgment on, is this a safe environment for me? If it's safe, I can release resources, whatever resources are, uh, precious brain chemicals, immune, resp uh, immune modulators, hormones, inflammatory agents, yada, yada, yada. I can release those. If I feel like, no, I'm in a dangerous environment, I'm not going to release those because my priority is never get rid of the cold. My ultimate priority is uh, survival. Does, does that make a degree of sense? Now, these things aren't, they're not conscious. A lot of these are, there's a genetic influence that's, I think, indisputable, but maybe not as large as we, we always think. There's what I think of as an epigenetic uh, influence, which is predominantly early life experience. Past, you know, early life experience is, I think, much more important than we conventionally think of uh, in our world. And all our experiences up to now have created a way that we look at the world and contextualize the, uh, the challenges presented by the world and, and our ability to handle those challenges. So it's not like it's a conscious choice, yes, no, I just make it up now. There's this whole momentum of history stretching back to the beginning of our species, to the beginning of your life, to last month, to your training history, to an hour ago, to the kind of mood you're in now. And all of these things are exerting some type of subtle influence on this judgment call. The, maybe this will help it, but uh, this is well demonstrated in other mammals. Uh, there's a whole host of behaviours that change when daylight changes just with the seasons. Me metabolic changes, sleep changes, activity changes, you know, just by the sleep-dark cycles start to modulate a little bit and there's changes. Again, what, why is that? Well, it's you as the organism taking in signals, interpreting those signals. What does this mean? It means less food. Okay, I'm going to move less. I'm going to sleep more. Yeah, I'm not going to stick my nose outside the hole. Whatever it is. Um, I think in, in humans, the kind of, the classic thing is you have a stressful period, whatever it is. It could be exams in college. It could be you're on a World Cup training camp and it's all hands on deck and a lot of stress. You're in an environment that's very negative. You get to the end of that environment, you go home for a week off and you get a cold. You get sick, right? It's like you can hold it together when you're under pressure, under stress, stress stops, and then, and then you pay the price. And I think that it makes sense from a survival perspective that we have the ability to influence these decisions. Again, it's not conscious release immune uh, modulators now. It's, it's something perhaps to do with emotion. We're kind of into the realm here of definition of words and, and what exactly is the, what moves the dial from 
I'm going to be very protective of resources. I'm going to be more generous in my release of resources. But to bring it back to kind of my world and, and, and your world, and maybe belatedly turning back to your question, if you look at if you look at stress, what is stress? Stress is a kind of the, the neural and physiological changes that happen in me when I feel I'm not able to cope with this current context. It's a perception. It's not a reality. This is reality, and this is my interpretation of my ability to deal with this reality. If I feel I can't deal with it well, I get what we conventionally call stress. Excessive release of stress hormones. Uh, there's some priming in the short term. It means I'm you know, ready to go. I'm on point. I'm cognitively sharp. But as soon as that goes over the top, either excessive release or the stress reaction goes on too long, then there's a whole host of negative responses. So that's stress. Key thing is there, it's a perception. How can I cope with the situation I'm in or the situation I'm going to be in? Turn to placebo and uh, nocebo. I know we haven't mentioned no nocebo, so that's just placebo's evil twin. Um, what is that? Again, it's me sitting here acting on, uh, I do a session with, with, with Quinn Quinn has a big reputation. He's really good. I'm definitely going to get better after this. The, the belief element you mentioned, John, after that, I feel better. What does feel better mean? Just means I kick off a cascade of uh, changes in my brain. Those changes are, are electrical. They're chemical. They're epigenetic in terms of different genes are being expressed there. It changes the ball, ball game. That belief that I have been treated by uh, a competent authority who's knowledgeable in the field makes me feel better. It makes me feel better, not through any kind of uh, spooky amorphous link, but through a direct neurochemical change. OK, how am I doing there? You're blowing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Hey guys, Quinn Hennick here. Consider this a little brain break from the mind-blowing placebo conversation that we're having with John Kiley. We wanted to let you know that we will be looking to begin scheduling our 2020 weightlifting and powerlifting certification. So if you know of a willing facility who would like to host a clinical athlete barbell certification, have them email events at clinicalathlete.com with a subject line of seminar host, and we will send all details. Alternatively, you can head over to the Clinical Athlete website and check out the hosting details in the events tab. And just another quick shout out to our show sponsors. Rehab to Perform is a physical therapy company that is geared towards developing the clinician of the future. Their comprehensive DPT internship program will prepare the future graduate to make an impact in the world of sports and orthopedic physical therapy. For more information, check out the link in the show notes. This show is also supported by AP Analytics. AP Analytics is a boutique data consulting firm specializing in creative and low-resource solutions. Andrew Patton, the founder and former Clinical Athlete Podcast guest from episode 44, has 10-plus years of experience working in human performance and general data-driven scientific consulting. If you need a question answered or have a problem and don't know where to start, head over to apanalytics.net 
or email Andrew directly at andrew at apanalytics.net. You can also check out that link in the show notes as well. And now back to the show. Before we recorded, we were talking a little bit about this stuff and kind of framing the conversation just to see where we wanted to go. And you brought up an example. This is in terms of stress. It was a roller coaster example where you have one person and they could be sitting side by side. They're on the same ride. Everything out, the environment's the same. One person is scared out of their mind in a negative way. They want off this thing. Terrified, anxious, stressed in that way. The person right beside them is having the time of their life. Loving every bit of it. Exhilarated. Stressed in that way. So my question to you just to wrap my head around this concept of stress, is it possible that both of these people have the same heart rate, the same, the same hormonal profile going through their body in that moment, but the psychological factors are different? Or is the physical stress, is the actual physiological stress different from, from, that pers- from person A to person B? I, what I'm struggling with is the is the the dynamic interplay between the psychological element of the I'm having f- in that particular example I'm having fun versus I'm not having fun and where where stress is deviating between those two people. Okay, so I'll give you my interpretation of the research. Um, and. Okay, maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll give it to you in my layman's terms and then maybe I'll give you the reference that you can put up in the site so f- that, that people can go and, and look at. So for me, what mediates that link is, and again, I, I think of it from a survival perspective, we have to have some mechanism for recognising fear, or sorry, for recognising danger. Am I in a dangerous situation or am I safe? Because we're all still here, we have to have that. For me, that is, I think of it in terms of emotion. There's a shift in emotion. Okay? That shift in emotion is recognised at a very deep uh, level in the brain. I actually talk about this in that stress paper you mentioned. That kicks off a cascade of neurochemical changes. It changes the concentrations of what is circulating in your brain, in different parts of your brain. I think what's become clear via the placebo research is that it's not just neurochemical changes. It's also electrical changes. It's also epigenetic, so there's different genes being expressed. So let's take the thought experiment. Me and you are genetically engineered twins, exact same life experience up to now. Then we're cleaved and... I'm afraid of roller coasters and you're not. That's the only difference between us to this point in time. As soon as we're told we're going on a roller coaster, my chemistry starts to change differently to yours. That kicks off a cascade of physiological effects. So, uh, you know, I get nervous, I start sweating, all those things. You're getting a more positive anticipation, I'm getting trepidation. So our neurochemical backgrounds are completely different before we even step on that roller coaster, and then they only divert more. So it's 
emotion, it's a recognition, and then there's some deep emotional change. And that is the trigger that starts to dribble out certain neurochemicals that trigger more, and then there's a whole cascade, top-down, feedback from above, or sorry, uh, and then it's a, sorry, I'm struggling over what I'm saying. But does that make sense? So what I'm saying is there is change, there is total difference between what, so I think it's emotion leads psychology. Okay. Now, I feel a bit uneasy as soon as we start talking about separating emotion and psychology. But if we're trying to break it down for the sake of clarity, change an emotion, and then those chemical changes change everything. They change your psychology. They change your physiology. They change your thoughts. Now, I think... Okay, sorry, go ahead, John. I think one, one point you made a little earlier that's good to kind of reiterate here you mentioned uh, nocebo, the evil twin, obviously, and that there's real no in between between placebo and nocebo. So in that roller coaster uh, example, we don't really have a neutral. You have you have A or B, and now it's probably a sliding scale. You have a larger effect of placebo or a larger effect of nocebo, but you're going to have one or the other as an influencer in regards to your next experience or your perceived outcome of a treatment or what it is that you're typically going through right now. So not to, I mean, I guess it does actually kind of dichotomize the two things, correct? Uh, yeah. And, and if it's okay to jump in there, go, yeah, go ahead. I think that's the way it looks from the conventional research, but logically, I think it is a sliding scale. So something happens to you. You go for treatment. You go for a training session. I think there'll always be a there will always be a influence based upon how you feel about the session and the context it is in, what type of a day you're having, uh, how confident you feel, are you having doubts? Is there other things going on in your life? They will always have an effect. There will always be a nocebo and or a placebo effect. It may be minimal some days, other days will be more. The whole thing for us, I think, is to first recognize that that's the case, then understand the mechanisms behind it, and then how can we intervene to make it, to push it more to this end than on the nocebo end. But, and that's something I meant to say when you talked about placebo controlled trials. In a sense, there, there is no real placebo-controlled trials. Trials. If I give you an active pill, it's active pill plus placebo. It's not just an active pill, and then that's the placebo over there. There's always a treatment effect. There's always part of the value of the therapy is the expectation that this will work or this is designed to help me, or this physio is very qualified and I heard good things, this is going to help me. And that, again, uh, changes your expectation, changes your belief, that changes your, your neurochemistry, that sets off the, the cascade of uh, downstream changes, and there's a whole, you're into a whole positive feedback loop. 
But my main point there is there's never not this influence. Now, I feel I need to go back to your your earlier question, Quinn, um, which I forgot. (laughs) Do you remember what it was? Shit, I'm sorry, guys. No, that's okay. Well, the last thing I talked about was the roller coaster analogy and the what's happening the the diversion of stress between those two situations because they're both for both of those people they're both stressful, correct? Uh the person who's enjoying yeah. the ride and the person who's not. Uh Yes, going by the definition of the word, yes, there is, but the chemical reaction is different. So you're fire, you're you're getting a hit of, you know, cortisol and endorphins and uh, adrenaline. I'm getting that, but I might be getting them in way different concentrations. Mm-hmm. You're getting enough to stimulate you. I'm I'm getting flooded, and I'm freaking out. So. Yeah, we're all playing with the same chemicals. Now, there's hundreds more than the ones we conventionally talk about, cortisol and, you know, uh, all, all the other ones we know. Well, there's, there's hundreds. We've just measured certain ones because they're easier to measure than others and built whole theories around them. Bring us back on track, Quinn. Oh, hell, I'm about to take us <laughs> off track here because, Jared, before I do... Jared, you had something to say? Well, it's just to, to build off of what you said, John, about how there's never not an influence of placebo. And I've heard people say before that we as health professionals and as coaches are, are walking placebos or, or we can we affect these changes in the people that we're working with, whether we want to or not. Um, and then I think that then leads us to recognizing the importance of having conversations like this and in having research, having research done into these concepts because it's happening anyway. And then we get into, um, you know, how we should conduct ourselves in an effort to best serve the people that we interact with, whether professionally or, or, or personally, you know, friends, family, that sort of thing. Um, just because that's going on in the way that we carry ourselves, the way that we talk our our nonverbal communications with those people. Um, and I think that, uh, I don't know, it's my personal belief that I think more and more professionals and students are recognizing uh, the are recognizing this, um, but it's still a confusing thing. I mean, obviously, this conversation is a lot of complexity and nuance to it, and we may not end up with, we won't end up with answers to all of our questions here and now, but at least being able to put some ideas on the table bat things around back and forth and then end up on some actionable steps that we can take uh, to best serve those people. I think that's really important. Well, I think that's that's a good uh, kind of direction forward for us in this conversation. I absolutely agree. And I think there's, for me, as someone who works with athletes and and, and a lot of injured athletes, um, I think there's two main things. There's what I can do in terms of how I communicate, how I design, uh, how I interact, how I present. So there's that, what I can do, what I control. And then there's also what the uh, athlete 
injured athlete can do themselves. So if I take what, what we can do first, I think there's, if we take that basic fact, there's, there's going to be an effect of the context of the treatment slash training session. There's always going to be an effect of the context. How can I make the context better? Now, uh, one of the one of the very interesting things I think is that if people understand what why they're doing what they're doing, that that is a a very simple uh, a very simple and a very positive thing that we can do in terms of communicating with them. I think that this will help you because of this is your situation. This is where we need to be in six months' time. This works. It's worked before. It's worked over here. There's this study. Let's do this. I think it will work for you. Do you agree? Yeah, but maybe we need to tweak this and that. Okay, let's do that. Let's give ourselves a week to tweak. That type of conversation where the athlete is involved, where, where they buy in, where they feel ownership, and ultimately where they feel, hey, you know what? This is for me. This is created for me to help me realize my goals. So if we can get, if we can draw that, help draw that line in their heads, this is set up for me. Uh, I believe in this and this, you know, this will help me get, to get where I want to be. I think that's powerful. And it's not something certainly in my community we've always done. It's always been, uh, I, I go into my mast, my kind of cave, and I designed this brilliant program you don't have to understand it. You're just the body. You yeah. just do it, you know. And and I mean, it might sound strange, but that is still a very strong culture. Depends on the sport, but it's still a very strong culture, even at elite international level. And I think it's toxic. I, I think it's toxic. Yeah. Um, okay, so there's what we can do. There's something else just popped into our mind and that. I'm sure you've done this more than me, but you sit in a meeting with an athlete, the MRI scans come out, and everyone is going, oh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and you can, you're painting this, you're putting a, a negative spin on things for an athlete, as if that negative spin doesn't have consequences, right. and it has terrible consequences. Uh, so we need to be, we need to kind of think of things like that and be better able to articulate and positively reframe without misleading or without misrepresenting the facts, but uh, just reframe in such a way that we're presenting information, we're presenting the truth, but not in a way that is overtly negative. We'd like to thank John Kiley for coming back on the show. You can check out the show notes for links to John's contact info. We highly recommend following his work. We'd like to thank the show sponsors, Rehab to Perform and AP Analytics. Check out the show notes to find their links and check out what they have to offer. And of course, thank you to my homies, Jared Maynard and John Flagg for steering this ship alongside me. And thank you, the clinical athlete community, 
all six of you for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. If you want to dive even deeper into this community, you can check out all that the Clinical Athlete Forum has to offer, which includes all of our Clinical Athlete Academy courses, amazing discussions and networking with professional clinicians and coaches, as well as students, and just our overall hub of knowledge in regards to athlete health and performance. Thanks, everyone, and talk to you soon.